part in while we uh, work out some uh, technical stuff here. We're trying a few new things uh, with the audiovisual. Our first sermon reading uh, comes today from uh, the Old Testament from Genesis. Uh, we'll be starting in chapter 3 and reading verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your lives. Thorns and thistles uh, shall it bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust." Until just you will return. Our uh, New Testament reading is from First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter six. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? And our sermon text today is from uh, Song of Songs. I'll start in chapter 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kadar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with a string of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved to me is a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the, vingard, the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. 
Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awake in love until it pleases. All right, so uh, I am uh, starting a sermon series on uh, the Song of Songs. Uh, I've actually received several requests to uh, preach on the Song of Songs over uh, the years, and it's understandable why. Song of Songs is a weird book. It's hard to figure out what to do with it. Why is it in the Bible? Uh, Anyone who has any familiarity with this book knows that it's possibly one of the most difficult and controversial books in the Bible. People who have been to church all their lives have probably never heard a sermon or even a Bible study from the Song of Songs. It doesn't seem to be spiritual at all. There is perhaps one verse in in the whole book and even this is controversial, that mentions God. But this is Resurrection Church, and one of our defining points is that we preach the whole counsel of God and allow ourselves to be challenged by even the difficult parts of the Bible. Still, it's a reasonable question. Why is this book in the Bible? And if you are asking this question, you are not alone. Believe it or not, the inclusion of the Song of Songs in the Old Testament was debated even by the ancient Jewish rabbis. Uh, after the destruction of the temple by the Romans, a collection of Jewish scholars gathered at a city called Jamnia. Now, the destruction of the temple was a really big deal. It ended the sacrificial system, and it required a whole rethinking of what what Judaism meant. What practices do we engage in now that there's no temple? And so the council that formed at Jamnia was an attempt to rethink Judaism in light of this sad new state of affairs. One of the issues the council of Jamnia examined was the canon or the official set of writings that were considered to be uh, scriptural, that were considered to be authoritative. And there were really only two books that were in dispute, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. Ultimately, both were included. And here's what Rabbi Akaba says about the Song of Songs. For no day in the history of the world is worth the day when the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all scripture is holy, but the Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. Now, of course, the Holy of Holies is a section of the temple where the very presence of God would reside. So Rabbi Akaba is effectively making the point that the presence of God is found here in the Song of Songs. Now, once you accept that the Song of Songs is actually scripture and is authoritative, Then the question becomes, how do you interpret the Song of Songs? And there's basically been two major approaches. 
One approach is that it is love poetry, and it should be read as such. The various euphemisms in this poem refer to exactly what you think they are referring to. In fact, much of the Song of Songs is actually modeled after Egyptian poetry. We actually have Egyptian poetry, and it sounds very similar. Perhaps we are being prudish and puritanical by dismissing this. After all, God created the uh, uh, physical creation in love, and physical love is a part of the human experience, and maybe we shouldn't turn up our nose at it being insufficiently spiritual. Another approach, and probably the most, prop, uh, probably the most popular, uh, both now and historically, is to view the Song of Songs as an allegory. Using this view, the story of the Song of Songs is a poetic expression of the love of God for his people. And we can find several places in the Old Testament where God is pictured as a husband and the Israelites as his wife. Likewise, in the New Testament, we know the church is called the Bride of Christ. So there does seem to be some logic to this allegorical approach. And typically, if you were to uh, write a commentary or give a talk on the Song of Songs, you begin by telling which approach you are taking, and you present arguments about why this approach is the right one and the other is wrong. Now, there is a way forward out of this centuries-old argument. And I think it's overlooked because most biblical scholars are scholars, and they're not literary people. They're not people who read literature. The key to understanding the Song of Songs is to read it like a poem and not a work of theology. Both readings of this song can and do exist in this book. It's a poem, and we should read it that way. Let me give you an example. So maybe you remember back in high school and college when you would study poetry in English class. Some of you probably even uh, are, are having nightmares now, now thinking about that. But there's a poem by John Donne, I think, that illustrates this pretty well. And you may have actually read this one, so that's why I selected it. The poem is called A Valediction Forbidding Morning, okay? Does anybody, anybody remember this one? Maybe, okay. Uh, the story of the poem is that two lovers are going to part for an extended period of time. The one going away comforts the other, and the poem ends with this really famous metaphor. I'm going to read it to you. It's a little flowery, but... Bear with me. If they be two, they are two so. As stiff twin compasses are two. Okay, think of a drawing compass. Okay. The soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth at the other do. And though it is in the center set, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it and goes erect so that it comes home. Such wilt thou be to me who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. The firmness makes my circle just and makes me in where I begun. And I know the language is flowery and it's a bit weird, but here the poet is comparing he and his lover to two legs of a drawing compass. They are two, and even though they one must move, they stay connected. And this connectedness ensures return and results in a perfect circle. And it's a beautiful metaphor. And part of what is striking about it is how unexpected it is. I mean, imagine if you gave your wife a drawing compass for her anniversary or Valentine's Day. It probably would not go over too well. Unless, of course, your wife has a master's in English and you and her were dating and took a class in English together. And one of the poems you read was Valediction Forbidden Morning by John Donne. 
which gives me an idea for next anniversary. <laughs> now, my point is, one can imagine a debate in which scholars in the future find this point, and they get into arguments about whether this point is between about uh, the love between a man or a woman, or is it about the beauty of geometry? You can even imagine the debate being framed in similar terms. A poem by such a great and respected poet like John Donne can't simply be about uh, love and romance between a man and a woman. That is too low for him. It must instead point to the sublimity of uh, geometry, no doubt influenced by Dunn's contemporary René Descartes and his new uh, concept of the Descartes, uh, the Cartesian coordinate system. Okay, and then also, no, the geometric tool is simply an analogy used to illustrate the depth and quality of the love between the two of them. Here's the thing about poetry, though. It can be both. Comparing two like, unlike things is kind of what poems do. Doing so doesn't mean that it's about one thing and not another. It means that both mutually inform and elevate our understanding of the other. As we will see, this is exactly what we find in the Song of Songs. It is absolutely love poetry with all its earthiness and physicality, but it is not only love poetry. The Song of Songs is a love poetry that takes these concrete images that we find understandable and relatable, but elevates them to provoke thought and meditation upon more abstract and transcendent themes, which is exactly what poetry does. Now, few of us, few of you here, maybe some exceptions, spend a lot of time reading poetry. And so maybe this isn't too relatable, but I bet all of you listen to music. And I think all of us have had the experience of listening to the, a song. Uh, and something about the words or the music just capture our mindset and our feeling just right. I think we can all relate to that. Maybe for Annabeth, it's a particular Billy Joel song. Maybe for Dr. Chris, it's Nickelback. Uh, now, if you're a country music fan like me, you know there's nothing better when you are feeling sad than country music. I mean, you listen to an old Hank Williams song. Hear that lonesome whippoorwill. He sounds too blue to fly. The midnight train is whining low. I'm so lonesome, I could cry. Now that gets me. I feel that. Maybe you don't feel it, but you know what I'm talking about here. You listen to the song and you feel it. It's not that the song, it's not just that the song expresses a similar thought. It is more than that. In some way we feel and we hear the song and it leads us to contemplation and meditation. Now, some of you here in the congregation are probably really comfortable when we talk about doctrine and systems of thought and you enjoy following arguments. However, for many of you, that doesn't quite resonate so well. Some of you are more comfortable with emotions and meditating and feeling and, so, and, and thinking about the sublime. You like thinking about mysteries and contemplating uh, things on that kind of level. Uh, you don't have to have black and white answers. It, it, it's not about that for you. And so uh, while, while some people might find this uncomfortable. Uh, I, I know I'm one of those, okay? This is not my jam. But both are important. And the Song of Songs speaks to us less in a structured way that maybe we're used to, but on a more higher emotional and imaginative level. 
So that's the first point I want to make here. We've got to kind of get into this mentality of understanding this book. And the second point I want to make is found in the imagery of the poem. Okay? So I really want to make just, I want to really get across just two big points. First of all, we have to read this poem. We have to read it like a poem and understand poetry and realize that we're not dealing with uh, propositions and logic in a, in a clear storyline. Uh, two, the imagery of this poem. If you look at our passage today and you listen to the language, think about what's being talked about here. There's vineyards, there's pastures, there's uh, the lily of the valleys, there's apple trees among the trees of the forest. Her love is better than wine. Her eyes are doves. Her cheeks are lovely with ornaments and the neck than a string of jewels. My, this is my favorite, uh, verse, uh, chapter one, verses 16 through 17. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. The rafters are pine. You know what she's saying here? What she's saying is that the outside, the garden, the natural world is like her house. It's kind of like if I was talking about our church today, and I could say that, you know, since we're outside, look, we've got a cedar here. The rafters of our church right now are literally cedars, just like this poem. So what we have here is all this language that is drawn from nature, from creation. Uh, it is pastoral, and it has this implication of fertility and abundance. What we have throughout here is garden imagery. And it's purposely designed to make us recall one thing, Eden, the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, Eden is described as a land of great abundance and fertility with trees of every kind. There are descriptions of precious jewels and their great abundance of wild animals as well as livestock. Exactly what we have in this uh, the first two chapters. And this connection would not be missed by those who were steeped in the scriptures and probably often thought and told stories about Eden. As we continue this sermon series, we will learn that Eden connects to other concepts that are picked up in the Song of Songs. So my second point here is that we need to read the Song of Songs with the story of Eden and its garden in mind. In fact, I think it's not too much of a stretch to think of the Song of Songs as a commentary on Genesis and the story of Eden. Of course, we know how that story ends, tragically, the consequences that result. And the description of those results was in our first scripture reading from Genesis 3. The fracturing of the relationship between man and woman, between humanity and God, between uh, creation and humanity between the animals and humanity the ground is cursed and work becomes a struggle death and scarcity are the new norm that replace fertility abundance and life the couple is exiled from this garden so if we understand genesis 3 as the background then what we have in song of songs is a glimpse of a return to the garden and what is explored in this poem is a world in which life, abundance, fertility, belonging, and love and communion with God and creation and each other dominate. Now, what we're going to find is it's not entirely a perfect world. Uh, this is not a description of the new heavens and new earth like we might find in Revelation. There is still opposition. Yet what we have in this love poem is Eden grasped and partly recovered. 
Song of Songs is a picture, an imaginative attempt to see the world as it should be rather than what it is. And that's why I think this is the perfect time to look at the Song of Songs. Just last uh, week, uh, or last couple weeks, was Easter. Winter is behind. Spring is here. Nature is awakening. Flowers are blooming and plants and trees are growing. Signs of resurrection and new heaven and new earth are surrounding us everywhere. It's not a perfect world yet. There are mosquitoes. And this week, there's pollen. (laughs) Many of you can uh, attest to that. Yet, I believe the good parts are a signpost. Song of Songs also acts as a signpost, pointing us to a world where the curses of the world have been reversed, and we can get a glimpse of life in the garden, life as it was meant to be, humanity enjoying creation, God and each other as they were meant to. The Song of Songs is inviting us to imagine it. Imagination. You know that over the past year, I've spent a lot of time talking about imagination as a spiritual practice. And that is part of the reason that I wanted to look at this difficult book, because I think imagination is important and has power. Um, I I first started thinking about this in the context of I've enjoyed. There's a a science fiction author that I've enjoyed reading. I'm, I'm actually not that big a fan of science fiction. Most of the time I find it just poorly written. But uh, there's a novelist named N.K. Jemison. I think I think Mason's familiar. Okay, she, he approves. Yeah, she's great, and she's one of the very few African American science fiction writers. She recently won her third consecutive Hugo Award in a row, and she's got a uh, short collection of stories. And the name of her short story collection is called "How Long to Black Future Month." Okay, so instead of Black History Month. It's Black Future Month. And her point is that seeing African-Americans as part of the future and imagining that world is at least as important as commemorating the achievements of the past. Imagining where you are going has a direct and real impact on today. I was really captivated by that thought. Uh, and, and so that's led me to thinking about this importance of, of imagination. Go with me here, though. Because, you know, this isn't just me being like, hey, look, I'm woke. I read this African-American science fiction writer. Because you know who else agrees with me on this point? Paul. Paul, Mr. Theologian himself, believes in the power of imagination as much as any Epcot exhibit. Figment shout out. Check out our passage from 1 Corinthians. The context is that the members of the church have legal disputes and are taking their cases to pagan secular judges and having them tried in Roman courts. As the Corinthian church is riddled with faction, this practice does not help Paul's call for unity. Paul knows conflicts are unavoidable, but his solution is for the church to handle the issues themselves and not take them to secular courts. Notice in verse 3 what Paul says. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Judging angels? Did you get that? Did you hear how he said that? Do you not know that you will judge angels? Actually, Paul, I didn't know. Uh, Well, and here's the thing. You can't find a verse in scripture that says that that's the case. 
this judging angels is a product of imagination. This is a creative thought. And maybe it's not Paul's thought. Who knows where he got it from? But it's a product of someone's imagination. Paul or someone else has thought about what sort of implications there are for a redeemed and resurrected humanity in a new heaven and new earth. And one of the implications is that humans will be given authority over angels. But Paul doesn't stop there at just saying something weird. He recommends an ethical behavior based on this imagined future implication. Nor is this the only example where Paul looks to new creation to develop an ethical recommendation. In other words, for Paul, what we do now is based on where we are going. And that is why imagination is important. So what does it look like when God sets things right? If that is the destiny of the universe, then what Paul's telling us and what I'm telling you is that we start working on it now. The resurrection changed everything. Easter changed everything. The point people often miss and that Paul understands is that resurrection is not just future hope. It is the victory of God. And now that that victory is broken into the real world, it is the church whose job it is to live it out. Jesus conquered death in the resurrection. And it will and he has uh, launched a revolution. The resurrection Easter was the day that revolution began. Christ is king right now. All authority has been given to him. And we are now called to make disciples. But following Christ and making disciples is not about following a few rules. It is a reconquering of creation from the dark forces of the world that have held it captive. It is a new way of being human that involves not just our individual salvation, but the salvation of all of creation and community. Like the world of the Song of Songs, it is both already and not yet. And it is glimpsed most truly through love because love transcends this world because God is love. For we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know only in part, but then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. Faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. So that's our plan over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking through the Song of Songs. We're going to be working through it. And what we will examine in this remarkable Psalms is to help us to guide our imaginations. Although it's poetry and it's fantastical, it's grounded in the real world. We will see there is opposition, yet we will see it in an attempt to recover what was lost in Eden in the real world. And that means the Song of Songs can help us imagine what the world looks like when it has been set right. How might we let our lives live our lives with this vision? That is what we will explore as we begin, as we begin to imagine resurrection.